Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. And welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, bringing back an old friend who helped us in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic with the viral episodes one and two. And Alex Long, a program associate with the Science Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. So I wanted to bring you on this time, not really to talk so much about the progression of the virus, which is what we talked about uh, in our previous two engagements together. But now we're looking at the possibility of having a vaccine pretty soon. Uh, So I want to walk through sort of where we are in the vaccine process. Uh, uh, And this is a global effort. We have not only Operation Warp Speed, but a lot of other countries are involved in doing this research as well. So I want to kind of ground truth on what is out there, and then we could talk a little bit about the distribution challenges of that. So, Alex, I guess let's start with where we are right now with the research. Yeah, so I would say that a couple of common names that comes to everyone's mind when we're always talking about this are Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, which currently have the three most promising um, vaccine candidates. Uh, Two of them being Pfizer and Moderna, both um, work with mRNA, which is a completely novel way to uh, attack viruses and to create vaccines. And the AstraZeneca vaccine uses a viral vector, um, which is also almost completely novel. The last time that that was used was actually uh, for an Ebola vaccine, which was very recently approved. So this is all to say, uh, watching this process go on from day one for someone who had an understanding of how long vaccines take and went to school to understand the uh, logistical hurdles you must go through from uh, the idea to make a vaccine to the actual getting the vaccine um, into the population. It's been an incredible, incredible feat. And I will say that I think you can find amongst people who study this, that there's a lot of optimism. And I mean, those three vaccine candidates that I mentioned earlier are just three out of the many, many, many vaccine candidates that are swirling around the world. There are a finite number within the U.S. that are being put through phase one, phase two, and phase three clinical trials as we speak. But the top line three are probably going to obviously get the most press for the next couple months um, because they are being able to apply for um, emergency use authorizations. and that will mean that they then go to the FDA and get approved. And what's exciting there is on the global scale, many countries um, have already bought in and made bilateral deals with Pfizer and Moderna, and same with AstraZeneca. The tricky part of this is when it gets to the global um, distribution of vaccines is we're living in a world where countries are performing a sort of vaccine nationalism, which has become a buzzword. And this vaccine nationalism means that countries are doing exactly what you'd expect them to do, which is looking out for their citizens. But in so doing, they're not buying into the uh, collective equitable access um, of vaccines for lower income countries. Um, So 
we're going to be facing within the coming weeks and months, how we can equitably distribute the vaccine because many studies have already been run and analysis have already been reported out that the way that we're going to get through this pandemic is by equitable access of vaccines to these low to middle income countries and not just vaccinating these first world players. So let's dive a little deeper. We've heard the Pfizer, Moderna. We we hear things in the media, numbers like 90% efficacy, 95% efficacy. What does that mean? And where are they in their trials when you talk about phase one, phase two, phase three? What does it mean to have a company come out and say, we have this vaccine that's showing 90% efficacy? Because I think a lot of people take that to mean, well, there's a vaccine they're going to put in my arm next week, but there's still a lot to go. Uh, So help us understand where this process and I guess a timeline understanding of what phase one, phase two, phase three mean. Right. So uh, when it comes to clinical trials, phase one and phase two are very small. So phase one, it can be dozens of people. Um, And that is to test out the initial um, just safety of the vaccine, pure safety. Um, Efficacy is, um, I'm pretty sure, analyzed, but that's not necessarily actually the point, because obviously they want to make sure that before they start ramping up testing in phase two and phase three, that there aren't going to be any disastrous or severe side effects. So after a uh, vaccine candidate is able to pass phase one, then phase two um, is then just larger. Uh, It could be a thousand, it could be anywhere between really a hundred and a thousand or so people. And those trials um, test more for efficacy and then strengthen the safety metrics that they had already collected in the first phase. And then once you have a vaccine candidate that passed the first phase, safety, passed the second phase, safety with efficacy, then it can move on to phase three, which of course only bolsters both of those. So it really um, is just so expansive and so large on the count of 30,000 and 43,000 people. Obviously still, those percentages are just percentages of a 30 per, of 30,000 people, which is not 330 million like the United States, but That said, um, when you account for all of the statistical uh, loops, uh, hoops that you have to jump through, um, basically, it's a pretty good representative of the United States and hopefully of the global public if these two uh, vaccine distributors and manufacturers did the trials correctly. Interestingly enough, um, earlier in the process, in about September, there weren't enough people of color or different uh, groups included in the study. So Pfizer actually chose to uh, ramp up their trial to 43,000. And I think Moderna also um, did some work to make sure it was more inclusive. I'm only mentioning that because those types of things are taken into account and have been flagged because regulators know and the companies know, unless they're able to prove efficacy across really any minority group, they're not going to be taken uh, with open arms by the public, especially after everything that's happened this year. Our, our minds and our thoughts are on top of different people experience illness and vaccines in different ways. And we need to account for that. OK, so when they have this proof in these phases done, I guess then they go to the FDA in this country, they would go to the FDA 
to get approval. How is a vaccine then manufactured and distributed? Let's just talk within the United States first. How do you get 330 million people to take a vaccine? So that's a great question that I'm also interested in seeing. And I think we all are. Um, One thing that's been helpful, obviously, is just the amount of money and the rate of um, collaboration that has occurred. And this is something that I want to be able um, to portray to the listeners, because I think a lot of people are worried about the clip of this, the speed at which we got to a vaccine based on everything that um, all public health officials and scientists were saying in the sense that don't necessarily bank on a vaccine in 2021. Yes, that would be great, but it's not a uh, hard and fast rule. But here we are. And that's actually looking to be very much the case. And I know that people are probably scared of um, cutting corners, I've heard a lot of, but it needs to be understood that with the amount of money and the amount of collaborators on it, it's not cutting corners. It's just accelerating a process that could be accelerated if the whole world is working on it and so much red tape is cut out. And that's where it gets to the manufacturing because when it comes to vaccines, we really haven't had um, a novel pandemic of this magnitude, obviously, since 1918, but we haven't had a situation where we needed all of the red tape to be cut and where we needed the government to basically buy out these vaccines before they're produced. So much vaccine, so much of vaccine development is held up by there not being enough buyers, especially when it comes to vaccines for things that people realize they don't actually want, like Zika. But this one is incredibly prescient and front of mind. So the manufacturing has already begun. There are already many um, vials of the respective vaccines that I've already mentioned um, been manu- that have been manufactured. So the next step is on December 10th for Pfizer. Um, it, they, the FDA will um, be reviewing uh, the well, we'll supposedly give the review of the emergency use authorization that they applied for. And if they, are, if they come back and say, it's good to go, then within 24 hours, Pfizer should be able to be shipping out their containers to hospitals across the United States and the world, really. So I also understand that it seems like the most efficacious vaccines are ones that require two doses. And how do you get people to then take two doses of something? Is that, a, is that an expected hurdle? Uh, short answer is absolutely yes. Um, the perfect vaccine is one that you're able to go to your CVS or Walgreens, get one shot, and then go home, similar to our current flu vaccine. But in every single one, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, it is a two-shot situation. And while that is definitely doable, it is going to be an absolute feat of science policy and also messaging and coordination within at least the U.S. because it's going to take databases, it's going to take reminders, and it's going to take a very special relationship with community leaders and people whom the public trusts, not only to get people to get the first vaccine, but also to get their booster. When you get a vaccine, it's pretty common to have some sort of response, whether it be soreness in your arm or fatigue or fever or something like that. And that should be, that's going to be one of the things that we need to really keep honing in on is communications and being transparent with, yes, there are 
um, these side effects, but they don't mean that you are contracting the coronavirus. They just mean that your body is taking in a vaccine because a vaccine is naturally a stimulating occurrence. So something happens. And the idea is you have to convince people, A, to get that vaccine, to understand that potentially a side effect like that is normal, because if they get that side effect, they need to then still be compelled to get their second booster. So you have to deal with whatever happens in that about a month. I've seen uh, different studies are two to three to four uh, weeks. You need to make sure that in that time frame, you A, know where the person is so you can contact them and make sure that they get another, but then also ensure that whatever happens there, they know that getting the booster is what confers the immunity. And obviously the perfect vaccine might come out later from all of the other ones that are being tried out right now as we speak in phase one and phase two and other clinical trials. But for the time being, we have to get used to the idea of a two-dose reality. You mentioned that the second dose is what confers the immunity. Uh, talking to a layman here, I mean, what what is the purpose of a two dose? Why what happens if you only take the one, uh, and why is it that the second is what confers the immunity? Is there no immunity until that point? I guess we need to clear that. That's because it's all part of the communication, right? Exactly. That's a great question. You need to get to a certain level. Um, to be able to incite the immune response necessary for it to stick. The only way to ensure that you have the immune response necessary is by having a certain dose that they space out over two, especially because almost like an engine, there's a Kickstarter. So there's the first one that primes your body, and then the second one that basically makes sure that that primer took and stays with you. It's all about giving your immune system enough to work with um, so that later on, weeks and months down the road, you're able to feel safe in that. But I mean, I'm sure that <laughs> we'll get to how long these last soon. <laughs> well, that's going to be my next question is how long it, we, we look at these, these, these latest fruits that we're seeing, how long would those antibodies last? Yeah, uh, great question. And the answer is we do not know. Um, there are a lot of things that we do not know about these vaccines. Um, namely, I would say the ones that you hear the most about and you hear the most questions um, coming from the public are how long is it going to last or confer the immunity? And then also um, the question that I don't necessarily hear that much is, does it actually protect against transmission? Both things we are unsure of. So there's really no way to know how long a vaccine lasts when you do it at this rapid pace. So while it's amazing that we have potentially three and potentially more really efficacious vaccines is absolutely incredible and something that should be held up on a pedestal, but understanding that in that fast time frame, we weren't able to study people for two years down the line to test them on day one and day 576. So we don't know yet, but we will because these trials still go on. And I think that's also important for people to know is that after the emergency youth authorization is set and uh, vaccines go out into the public, these trials that we have heard, these amazing numbers, 95% effective, those people are still enrolled in those trials. So these companies still have agreements with their participants that they will be checking in on them at certain time intervals and that if any adverse events happen, down the road, they are very transparent and they monitor the process and they're able to get 
the news out to the public um, once it happens. It's going to be tricky, I'll be honest with you, once these emergency youth authorizations are put into effect. It's going to be interesting to see when they're approved and the people who are in the placebo group may or may not be able to get vaccinated if they're going to keep the integrity of the clinical trial. So the way that you figure out if a vaccine is effective is by seeing how many people in the placebo group and how many people in the vaccine group got infected. Now, once there's a vaccine on the market, those people in the placebo group, um, as is true for most, if not all, double-blind trials, are then given the medicine that they did not receive initially once it has reached approval. But because this is emergency use and a different, a quicker approval, technically speaking, if we want the science to be really sound as we've known it before, we would really like for that control group to stay with a placebo, but that's unethical in a lot of ways. Right. What an ethical, that's a, that's a serious ethical dilemma. It's crazy. Very interested to see how that goes. Because if you, you can just imagine the quandary that you're put into that situation with. And um, it's going to, that's going to be something that it's going to be important to figure out an answer to. And I don't know it. I don't know if it's going to be still immunizing the people who are in the control and giving people the option to wait it out. I don't know. But it's going to be important because we still, in a perfect world, we'd like to know how those control group and the um, non-control vaccinated group how their two years or X amount of years align and what is different and what is the same between those groups. That's important. And then what's also important is distribution. And if you have a two dose vaccine, if you have about a month between doses, uh, it's, it's not like we're just going to go and into our local CVS or Walmart and, or primary care physician, get a shot, walk out and suddenly the virus is gone. This is going to take time. And if we, you know, the, the logistical hurdles of rolling out 330 million vaccines, much less 7 billion throughout the world, what realistically are we looking at as far as a timeline? Uh, and, and I guess taking away the how long does it last question, let's assume that it lasts, confers immunity until next year and it ends up being like a flu shot and you need to get a, a new flu shot every year. But uh, what are we looking at realistically as far as time before? people start to see some results from a vaccine? That's a very good question. And it's one that depends on many factors. And one of those factors is, and I was, we were talking earlier, and it's important to know that I'm, I hope that I'm coming off as optimistic because I really am. But I also want to pair that with, I have watched how distribution of things has gone uh, since March. Yeah, try to get try to get paper towels right now. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Um, and I think that a lot of people are uh, very understandably wary about this seemingly silver bullet when really a lot can potentially go wrong within the next couple months. Um, I will say I'm more hopeful now than I have been um, in the past couple months based on how they're planning on distributing it with like Pfizer, for example, has these, which you may have heard of, these like negative 70 degree chambers that they're sending their vaccines in because Pfizer's has to operate at negative 70 degrees, which is really tough. And 
the end goal, I know that you said it's not going to be like walking into CVS and Walgreens, but that would be the end goal. The end goal would be making it as normal as possible. Because while the distribution is something that I think, um, as much as I'd like to be able to answer your question, I know that some people are throwing around dates saying that enough people will be immunized in the US by May, um, that herd immunity will start um, to be a phrase that we can say we have, which would mean 70% of the public um, is immunized. Uh, and that would go from healthcare workers to people who are um, have many comorbidities to frontline workers, et cetera. And they're projecting that May might be that time where so many people fall into those at-risk categories that we may be seeing um, the effects or the positives of this herd immunity situation. And maybe the vaccine will be able to be in your CVS and you'll ho hopefully be able to walk in and it'll be normal so that people will be able to take it up. But I think that what's really going to hinder this process is people not getting the vaccine or the communications around getting the vaccine. And the unfortunately, there's a lot of anti-science out there. There's the anti-vaccination movement, which was around well before COVID-19, but has obviously, as you could imagine, taken roots in anti-masking, anti-social distancing, and now again, obviously, anti-vaccination. So yes, it's going to be really important to get those freezers into the CVSs, into the Walgreens, into your primary care physician's office, but it's also going to be a huge hurdle to get the comms out there and get the people in front of the public to convince them that taking the vaccine is worth their time. And that's going to come in many different ways. I know that there's a famous picture of Obama getting a vaccine to try to get people to feel okay with it. And you could see the same thing happening with a picture of Dr. Fauci getting a vaccine or uh, even a celebrity to target different groups of people to show that they know someone or they look up to someone or they emulate someone who has gotten the vaccine. And while the distribution is super important and is a slew of issues, making sure that rural hospitals have um, both the connections to get the vaccine, but also the freezers to store them. Uh, that's going to be a huge issue. But I think that the communications and the actually getting people to trust in the vaccine is going to be very laborious and something that the Biden administration really needs to actually, obviously is thinking very long and hard about. Well, I think you said it best, but it could go very well, but it could also go very badly. We're at a, a tipping point here. Uh, it is amazing what has happened in the last several months uh, as far as the advances in one, what we know about the virus and two, how to treat the vi those who have the virus. And then now as we look at a vaccine, uh, you know, we're kind of looking into the next chapter. We're able to, to turn to the next, turn the next page and see what uh, how to deal with some of these logistical hurdles of production, manufactured production and uh, distribution of a vaccine. Yeah. And I don't mean to just insert this, but I do think it should be said that one thing that I'm also very excited about, but am holding back is the fact that the two leading vaccine candidates right now are mRNA vaccines is, is novel in its own right, because it's the first time that an mRNA vaccine would be widely distributed for um, and proven as a vaccine candidate for a pandemic situation. But also 
if we move into a world where we can use mRNA vaccines for future pandemics, this is going to bring a whole new level of science to um, the immunology field. And that's exciting in its own right. So it's incredible that this technology is being used now because mRNA is, and not to super get into it, but basically you can design the vaccine from your laptop, understanding the genetic code of a virus, rather than having to do the laborious task of culturing viral cells or different proteins, which used to be the old way. So if this all goes well, obviously the thing I'm most excited about is us as a global public getting through this pandemic with equitable access to these vaccines is extremely important. But then in the years and years to come, we have reached this new uh, standard for how quickly you can get a vaccine from isolating the DNA of the vaccine to putting that DNA, um, all of that data and information on the web, um, like was done on January like 10th or in the early days of January um, by scientists from China. And then vaccine makers were able to jump right on it and make this mRNA vaccine. So this is also going to usher in a new era of vaccine research, which is so incredible and important and a great silver lining. So we stand on the precipice of a possible revolution in vaccinology. I know I said it earlier, but the first couple months of this pandemic felt like a disaster movie and it still is not good. We are still seeing record cases every day and it's only getting worse as it looks. But the silver lining and the thing we, the thing we have done that is impressive is we have acted in such necessary speed that we've advanced this one piece of science that has been really trying to eke its way into the global consciousness as a revolutionary way to deal with issues like this. And unfortunately, this is the moment that, um, unfortunately, this awful moment had to propel this amazing technology forward. Well, Alex, thank you so much for catching us up on where we stand with this. Like you said, it's, it has been a long road and our thoughts are certainly with those who are suffering from this virus and the families that have had to deal with this throughout the year. Uh, and, you know, the Wilson Center is kind of part of that policy community where you, people like you are watching the research, watching how it unfolds and seeing how the policy works in order to make these these sorts of things better. So as we face, you know, if we face these in the future, that there's policies in place. So we, we appreciate your work. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. This is this has been great, as it always is. <laughs>